0: Asia Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. Welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. The next 45 minutes, we are going to talk to Edmund Lowell, the founder of KYC Chain and also the founder of the SelfKey Foundation. And Flag Theory, we're going to talk about that interesting intersect between the worlds of finance, technology, identity, privacy, and the magic word, blockchain. So stick around for 45 minutes because Edwin is gonna take us on a world that starts with the Jason Bourne lifestyle of the location independent entrepreneur all the way up to KYC compliance with large financial institutions. Rounding up with a view of society, what will the world look like in future? when human beings, individuals own their own privacy and identity. Coming up, Edmund Lowell. Asia Tech Podcast.
1: Find out more at atp.show.
0: Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. Today, introducing you to Edmund Lowell, founder of Self Key Foundation. We've got a long journey to cover today. Diving into the worlds of privacy, self-sovereign identity. And everything in between, the Jason Bourne lifestyle of living between worlds. Edmund, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Graham. Appreciate it. It's
0: great to have you here. You live a very interesting lifestyle. You've traveled a lot. You live across many different time zones and countries. It's uh, it, On face, it looks like a very unique lifestyle, but it's an increasingly popular way of living, isn't it? That There's a lot of people out there who... Have left their home countries and they sort of move to where they're treated best so let's talk a little bit about yourself you're from the northeast you're from northeast u.s originally right how did you make it out to asia tell us a little bit about that one if you may edmund
1: sure well i mean you make it sound a lot more glamorous than i think it is it's mostly <laughs> jet lag melatonin and crappy airline food but uh yeah <laughs> that's glamorous <laughs> yeah about as, about as glamorous as it can get i guess um so i i started, uh, my professional career in in, uh, in Boston. I graduated from Northeastern University. I was a licensed broker at the time that the housing market collapsed and went to zero. Uh, a lot of people remember that in 08. Um, and I was looking for another profession because the one I was in was, was pretty much at the yeah. bottom of the market. Uh, so I knew that a lot of uh, real estate developers, property owners were setting up legal entities for each property, and so I had those relationships, and I had a little bit of that knowledge, so I started doing that as a registered agent is what it's called in the US, setting up and forming LLCs, corporations, mm. introducing them to a bank. Um, that was really how I started my professional career was uh, Was doing that type of work. That was my first entrepreneurial mm. stint, I'd say.
0: So you were helping people set up companies. Did that sort of was that a world that sort of drew you in because once you start getting into incorporation you start sort of opening doors on new worlds, don't you? You realize there's another world of people out there who who you know are setting up or can set up companies in these location independent formats and so on. Were you sort of exposed to that when you were in the northeast or did that come later on when you started moving out to Asia?
1: Yeah, I mean that that kind of came gradually. So I was uh, living in the Northeast, and in the Northeast, it's a very very cold in the winter time. Oh yeah, and uh, I was looking to escape that. I also did a bit of. Uh professional fighting so I was exposed to Muay Thai and that's how I came out to Thailand for the first time was to go train Muay Thai and uh, a common trick among amateur fighters was to go have your fights in Thailand because even if you lose they don't count against your record um, generally so uh, yeah I made my way out to Thailand and and I enjoyed it so much that I was just sort of seeking any way that I could to to live there more full-time and that's when I sort of learned more about this location independent lifestyle and uh, sort of started basing myself out of Southeast Asia um so yeah that's how I kind of got started around 2011 2012
0: timeline. Yeah. So you've been in Asia for 7 years and you've been exposed I guess to a lot of people who like yourself maybe have come to Asia seeking a better lifestyle you know they realize actually that you can build businesses in, the, in these sort of formats which you never knew were possible and that sort of throws up all these kind of different challenges doesn't it about you know um, where you're registered, what you do with your data and so on. So I guess you kind of got into this world of identity and privacy as well. I want to talk a little bit about that because working this round to self-key, this is your thing. This is your, uh, if I can call it a day job, but this is your passion, right? What exactly is self-key? Tell us a little bit about that. And then we'll look at how you kind of
1: got into that. Sure. So, uh, right. So, so I guess the first business that I started was flagged there is setting up a company in, in jurisdiction obtaining a bank account and then um, to do that process you have to submit KYC you have to Mm. give some identity documents about yourself so the bottleneck for us growing that business was collecting the KYC from customers and then passing it along to the parties we're working with such as banks Um, so we formed a company in around 2013-2014 called KYC Chain which is uh, a b2b software as a service solution that tries to make it easier for professional intermediaries to collect documents it's Sort of a fancy way of saying just collecting identity documents on someone. And we realized through running that business that the the thing which we'd missed was that even though we'd created a lot of efficiency gains for an organization, we hadn't returned a lot of value to the individual yet. And so um, there was this part of our roadmap, which was an open question mark, which was called an identity wallet. This, when mm. are we gonna build this? How are we gonna build this? We think it should be a different company. This is 2014, 2015, we're, we're, we're thinking about these issues. Um, and then when the ICO boom came in 2017, we saw all of these companies that were brand new uh, launching in the blockchain space when we'd had quite a bit of experience. Well, for a blockchain company, two, three years, was a lifetime at that point. Mm. And uh, that's when we decided to open up this part of our roadmap the identity wallet, and really, really go, in earnest. After that, so so now that we've launched uh, SelfKey, it's been kind of uh, eight or nine months post our token sale. We've delivered a product, uh, working product, to the market, which is an identity wallet. So mm-hmm. that enables you to store your identity documents and data, and also your cryptocurrency locally on your device with no server infrastructure, and then also has a marketplace, so that you can go in and actually sign up for financial services and different products with one click. Um, and that's where we think kind of the future of finance is going uh, in terms of the identity spaces, the ability to discover and sign up for products which fit your need very, very easily, which if you've ever done uh, in the current, you know, kind of 2008 environment is, is quite difficult sometimes, especially um, if you have a unique situation, like you're an expat or a traveler, mm-hmm. or an immigrant, sometimes it's difficult to get access to financial services.
0: Oh, absolutely. So- we'll go into the uh, the product a bit in a minute and understand how it works and how it interfaces with all the different systems and so on is what you're talking about i mean if you're talking about an identity wallet that does things differently does that is that sort of the small lever that changes everything will that change the system if we treat identity and the way identity is traded between these organizations differently will that change the financial system as we know it just so i can understand or is it just going to make it more efficient as we are today
1: Yeah. So that's an interesting question. I mean, I think as an entrepreneur, you have to balance between being pragmatic and understanding what the limitations are with the resources you have and having a grand vision and a big, hairy, audacious goal that you're Mm -hmm. striving for. So certainly our 10 year goal is to change the financial system and the way that they deal with identity. But that's not in our three to six month roadmap. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And to be fair, I mean, what we're trying to do right now is to make it more efficient, for you to be able to discover and sign up for those financial services and send your passport and send your, your documents that have been certified by notary over to those uh, institutions that are requesting it so that you can get access to these services, right? That's what's happening today. On the other side of the, of the chasm, on the other side of the Canyon is this ability to send details about your, yourself that preserves privacy, right? So if I want to share an identity attribute about myself, you know, um, I am an American citizen, but I don't necessarily want to give you a scanned copy of my passport. How do I do that? And, and there's a thing called a DID, um, which can be signed by, say, a notary. That's essentially a JSON string. It's it's a it's a set of information that's machine readable that you can prove has been signed by this person on this date. And that's mm-hmm. a much safer way to send information about yourself than the passport scan, which could be you know stolen or used for identity theft. And that's kind of step one. Um, there's also things like Uh, privacy preserving, zero knowledge proof type uh, exchanges, which is a bit more technical. And I think, um, you know, beyond the scope of, of current implementation, but it is possible on the path of the technology and the path where we're going hmm. um, so so that's generally how I explain it to my team there's a canyon and and there's what's possible under the laws and infrastructure of 2018 and today present time and there's what's possible with the technology and we've kind of view our job as a company as building a bridge to get over there to be both compliant and more efficient with the existing laws and infrastructure and then uh, future focused enough so that the companies we're working with um, don't find their technology redundant in five years they've built a future-proof system in their back-end KYC so so that's kind of the grand vision that I have is is uh, somehow achieving both
0: yeah I mean it's a fantastic vision as well I, I want to ask you about that Edmund is that I guess the challenges you've mentioned it already balancing the big audacious goals with with the pragmatics as well and one of the challenges being is that Entrepreneurs are eternal optimists. We always think things are going to work out faster than they really will and you know for half the price and so on. How do you, um, you know, work in that system where you have some very slow moving parts? Maybe you can I identify them as well. Is that Okay, if you're involved in that whole sort of KYC process today, you mentioned for example like a notary is that a legal requirement does a notary have to physically sign that document for example is that in you know is that written down somewhere as a, as a requirement or is that just best practice and what, what are those sort of slow moving aspects of that whole chain which still may not lend themselves yet to the the digital era
1: sure well i think the yeah, anyone who knows me would probably say I'm more of a pessimist than an optimist. <laughs> but uh, yeah, generally speaking, you, you're you're correct. Uh, essentially, the slowest moving part of an identity system is almost always the government and the legal infrastructure that's behind it. The technology is is unbounded by uh, you know changes in in political parties or uh, political influence mm-hmm. and can run at its own speed. Uh, the laws and regulations does do tend to go a little bit slower, um, but we don't see that as as necessarily a hurdle. I mean, to me, I've kind of built this company in a way where we are able to withstand kind of ups and downs in the in the crypto market and be able to withstand uh, changes in laws and regulation and be compliant on an international scale. So so I think that I have the plan on how to tackle that. Um, Specifically, more to your question, you know, is it a requirement for the notary to view a document or to sign it physically? Um, there are some laws in some jurisdictions that allow for an electronic notary, for instance. So we are seeing certain governments kind of move on that. And um, I do think that we'll start to see more countries, you know, particularly in Asia, embracing uh, these digital identity schemes. The, the mm-hmm. key question for me, though, is is how are these schemes built and developed and what's kind of the core ethos of the system? Um, so without calling out any individual countries, um, you know, th- there's kind of this notion of a very centralized identity scheme where mm. uh, a government has and controls all of the data on all of its of its uh, subjects or citizenry. Um, and then there's a self-sovereign identity system, which is a decentralized system of identity and, and the key point, which I tried to lay out in, my, in the white paper that we wrote for SelfKey, is that a decentralized system is is not only more efficient and better for the citizenry, but it's much safer. And that's really primarily what we're concerned about um, when we talk about identity system is is the efficiency, but more importantly, the security. You know, how do we mm. keep this system safe from um, you know adverse parties potentially attacking the system? Um, mm. So we can get into that more if you'd like. But but I think that that's kind of one of the key. Crucial distinctions as we look towards the future is is how are these systems built? Are they are they primarily a centralized system or a decentralized system?
0: Mm. So is, is that I mean in let's go back. So you mentioned the word ethos. Let's talk about philosophy. You know what you're doing. Are you is it a fil- Philosophical endeavor as well with something like self key. Do you have a vision of a society that is better than what it is today? Is that what's driving you? Or is it the fact that you can see a business opportunity here and, you know, there's a pain point which you're trying to solve? I'm trying to wonder at what sort of level you're approaching it. Because self keys is actually a foundation, right? But you also have the business element to it as well. Maybe you could explain a little bit about your, your views on what you feel about the philosophical angle on identity and privacy.
1: Sure. I mean, it's definitely both, right? I think that you know, in order to be an effective entrepreneur, you need to be pragmatic and have an understanding of the core fundamentals of a business. Otherwise, you're not going to be an entrepreneur for very long, mm. um, and you and you might just uh, wind up being being a charity, or or, or going out of business. Um, on the other hand, if you don't have a purpose and a meaning for what you're doing, I think it's really hard to stay in the game for years or a decade. And that's oftentimes what it takes to build a successful business. I mean, businesses are not built. Overnight, despite what you read on the internet or in com, or in a magazine that portrays this overnight success, oftentimes there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears behind that, you know, successful endeavor that was that was successfully Mm. accomplished by that entrepreneur. So um, anyway, to your question, you know, am I philosophically driven by this? I would say absolutely. Yes, I, I do think that people have a right to own their identity. And I think that the individual um, has somehow been left behind by corporations and governments in some respect. If you look at, you know, just recently in the news this year, it seems like every other week, there's news of a gigantic data leak, mm-hmm. um, where people's personal information has been compromised. And if you look at the perspective of the organizations that do this, uh, oftentimes they're treating that as, as uh, you know, a loss, which is unfortunate, but I'm not sure that, that the people who lost their identity have been Properly compensated or, or been kind of, uh, you know, rightly enfranchised in the first place. If you look at something like Equifax in the U.S., mm. right, this is a situation where an individual, uh, well, 100 million individuals in the United States, 143
0: million, their, million,
1: yeah. There you go, 143 million people lost their identity data or was compromised in some way. And here you have the executives of Equifax who are actually engaged, as, as far as I understand it. This is as reported. Um, engaged in insider trading mm. on that news before it came out. I mean, what an egregious breach of, of yeah. your customer's trust. And uh, with a credit bureau, you're talking about something which you didn't even choose to sign up for necessarily. You were signed up automatically. Uh, and then this company is making profits off of that. And there's no opt out mm. of a credit score system as far as I understand it. Um, so I just think that the whole way that identity is managed from the centralized institution creates a large attack vector for a hacker. If I'm going to hacker, I'm not gonna go after Graham Brown's laptop. I'm gonna go after Equifax's gigantic trove of 143 million individuals' identity data, because if I'm successful, I haven't stolen just Graham Brown's identity, I've stolen 143 million people's identity. So mm-hmm. that's where we think that a decentralized system is really inherently a more secure system, is because it doesn't create this centralized honeypot for attackers and hackers to go after, um, it's it's distributed and spread out, and the value of any one target is significantly less. So the hackers will just decide to go after something else rather than a decentralized system like SelfKey.
0: I was just whilst you were going through the 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 backstory to that one, Edwin, I was just having a look at the the number of data breaches, which were larger than Equifax. Obviously, that's a recent one, but you know, Equifax doesn't even feature in the top five so you know i mean equifax is is small fry by you know comparison obviously there was ebay before that under armor this year as well 150 million but the the mother of all data breaches was yahoo back what five years ago three billion so you know it just goes to show isn't it that even i mean like you say i mean equifax was gathering data without our permission necessarily but yahoo or even a facebook more recently they have a lot more data on us as well it just goes to show how deeply in root, you know, rooted this is in large companies as well and you know, how much their business is built around that. Is it, is it you know, that point about the fact that it's centralized identity and privacy, that's the issue, or is it more of a sort of a cultural thing, or can you separate the two in the sense that you may say, well, it's maybe, like you mentioned, there was egregious activities going on. Maybe it's a culture of that and the fact that a good culture would not let this happen, or is it the fact that it's centralized identity and privacy?
1: I actually don't think that it's a cultural thing. I don't think that, uh, you know, Melissa Mayer woke up at Yahoo and said, hey, we, we should ignore um, you know, the, right. the idea that we should protect our data, right? I think these are well-intentioned executives. I don't think that they're, they're malicious in their intent. I think it's much more just a security issue and a design issue. If you, if you have a system that's designed uh, with a centralized database to house all the data, which is how most uh, cloud-based systems are designed, then you have a single point of failure. Point blank period, and it's very hard to mitigate against that. The, the, the proper way to mitigate against that is to have um, fail safes and to, uh, if you have a centralized system, build a moat around the castle and then you put dragons, yeah. you know, or alligators and crocodiles in the moat, and you hope that people stay out because it's scary to try to go in there. With a decentralized system, instead of storing that. Treasure in the castle with the moat around it. You've taken the treasure and you've broken it out into little safes and you spread them out throughout the kingdom. And for a robber to go into each and every individual house and get the small little treasure chest just isn't worth it. They'll mm. go and do something else with their time because it's it's not worthwhile to go after kind of those smaller targets. So so that's how I generally explain the difference between uh, decentralized and distributed system. Um, when it relates to identity Absolutely. and income, that
0: data, it's a great visual as well. A lovely analogy. So well done. I think that was a great sort of visualization of the difference between the two. Let's sort of explore that a little bit, if we can. Um, uh, we can bring in flag theory because this was obviously something which was quite instrumental in the the journey of SelfKey as well. I know th- this was a business and endeavor that you had before. Flag theory is a thing as well, isn't it? It's not just the, the name of what you were doing but it it's a it's a theory or an idea that a philosophy that exists and it's out there we've sort of touched upon it vaguely as well maybe we can sort of elaborate a little bit on this me with my understanding of flag theory comes through other parties so for example my first understanding of flag theory was through Andrew Henderson a friend of mine that runs Nomad Capitalist as an example, people who made that sort of like you know out in put that out into the the public domain. Can you explain a little bit about what flag theory is as a philosophy and how that's sort of related to your own background
1: and life? Sure. So uh, I think it came around in the nineteen fifties. Really, the first uh, notion of flag theory, and basically what the general ethos is, is that you should go to where you're treated best. So. You should design your life in a way where you've set up different flags or aspects of your financial uh, life in a country where you get the best results. Um, and, and you're treated most fairly. So as an entrepreneur, you could say, for instance, really choose to set up a company in almost any country in the world, um, but where would be the best place to set up that company? So now, for instance, we have a website, incorporations.io, incorporations with an s.io, and you can go there and you can compare every country of the world and see where it's a good place mm. for you to set up a company as an entrepreneur. But that's not kind of the only thing to take into consideration. You'd also want to think about where you're a resident. Wherever you're a resident, you're most likely going to be um, a tax resident, except if you're an American citizen where you have a global worldwide tax obligation, mm-hmm. um, generally you're a resident of a country and then you pay tax there. So different countries have different tax laws. They have different benefits from being a resident. Um, you can obtain a visa or a work permit or a permanent residency, or even sometimes a citizenship for investing or, or setting up a company um, in those countries. So we have another website, Passports.io, that compares different countries of the world and shows you where you can become a citizen and residency.io where you can see where to become a resident. Um, and really this, this whole system of flag theory is designed to, um, look at the world as kind of a holistic, um, place where you don't necessarily have to be bounded by the borders of one specific jurisdiction. You Mm -hmm. can, um, set up redundancies for yourself. Um, you can be as as some people have called it a micro multinational. So now it's Mm -hmm. possible to have a globally run company from anywhere in the world. And uh, you don't necessarily have to do your banking or your incorporation or your residency um, kind of all in one place. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's a fundamental change. Um, even within the last 50 years, it's just been much more, uh, it's become easier, it's become less expensive, it's become more effective to um, to do that. So so that's generally the idea and the ethos of flag theory, as best as I can explain it in a couple minutes.
0: Yeah, no, it's a good attempt as well. I think that's as best as we're going to get. What would what what are you seeing, Edmund, from your vantage point in what's happening in Asia at the moment in, on this sort of riff? Is that I, I imagine if you ask your average person, even your average entrepreneur, they don't know about this. They don't even know. I mean, people, most people would set up a company where they live, right? Because that's sort of what they think they should be doing. They don't know there are options. And add to that, there's a lot of competition now, isn't it? I mean, if you're a small jurisdiction like a Singapore or Hong Kong or even a Malta now or an Estonia you know you have the ability to you know tailor your your jurisdiction and your regulatory environment to certain types of businesses and we're seeing that aren't we that now the these smaller smaller countries are competing they, they have to, to stay relevant in, you know, the global marketplace where businesses are moving around and choosing and picking, like becoming micro multinationals, right? What are you seeing that's going on? What are the sort of the trends happening in that space that you're seeing from
1: an Asian vantage point? Sure. Well, I mean, I think really this is something that's just kind of scratching the surface, but um, ultimately when you're setting up a company, um, you're bringing a lot of things to a society, right? You, you have the option of incorporating anywhere, but once you do, you're really bringing jobs, you're bringing social security payments on the people that you employ. You're bringing tax dollars, the people whose jobs you give, then they'll have to pay taxes on the stuff that they spend and on their salary. Um, once those people die, they'll have to pay uh, tax potentially on the money that they transfer to their heirs through estate tax. Um, any taxes on the investment that your business or the employees make would be tax and capital gains, any taxes on distributions to shareholders would be dividends. Um, you know, So there's, there's a lot of money and value that's transferred to a society when a new business is set up and created there. So mm. in a way, you're absolutely correct. These countries are in competition um, with each other to attract new entrepreneurs uh, to their country, to receive these benefits. Right. And I think that we'll start to see even more competition from countries um, who want to attract sort of the best talent. Right. So you mentioned one country, Singapore, Singapore has made it so easy to set up a company and obtain a bank account and get up and running and, and in particular in certain sectors. Right. So I think MAS deserves a lot of credit for mm-hmm. fostering a positive ecosystem around fintech and, and regtech. Um, so if you're a fintech entrepreneur, you're going to be looking, OK, great, we're going to expand to Asia now. Where should we base our headquarters? And Singapore, Hong Kong, really attractive jurisdictions to do that, to provide sort of a soft landing. It's a lot harder pragmatically to go directly into China as a foreign entrepreneur. Um, and, you know, there's there's lots of reasons why that might be. But but I think the primary reason is that a place like Singapore, Hong Kong has created a very nice, safe landing spot with an efficient system for setting up a company uh, effective and, and uh, efficient tax regime and those are some of the things that an entrepreneur is looking for when they're setting up a new country sorry new company or at least they should be right mm-hmm. so so those are those are some of the things to think about
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Certainly something I thought about myself and moving from Japan to Singapore and setting up a company for those reasons entirely, as well as access to capital and so on and the ease of, you know, bureaucratic burden, if you like. I'm just wondering what that looks like in the future as well. Let's add in identity and privacy and and self-key into this in, in that sort of vision of where we will be 10 years from now. Will this still be, you know, a small group of mobile entrepreneurs living like this? Or do you think that Now, we have potentially access to the the mainstream financial systems as well through, you know, for example, some of the work that you're doing. Will that change things? Will it just make it easy? Will it become a default for people to say, okay, right, if you're a fintech company, you know, why are you based in the States? Why don't you just move to Singapore or Hong Kong now? To what extent will that become a day-to-day conversation for entrepreneurs?
1: Well, it's a good question. I mean, I certainly don't think that some of these trends will slow down. I don't think that the fintech trend will slow down. I don't think that people being mobile and wanting to move to new countries will slow down. I think that our, our world will become more global and more international, not less. Um, and, and we're going to try to you know, provide services there from kind of a macro perspective. So that is something that we're kind of betting on is is that trend, that trend that people will be more mobile mm-hmm. and, and start a new business in a new place.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's bring this round to blockchain now, if we can, because this is sort of like sagging this this conversation into you know where you are. And recently, I want to I want to ask you because now you've been in this space longer than most. I mean, even to be in this space for more than two years or three years is significant in the the world of blockchain. What what are your view on? what's your view on how, where we are right now in 2018 in terms of this huge surge of interesting blockchain as well as particularly you know there's a lot of companies getting involved in this space this ico the ico activity has exploded um, you know are we are we in a healthy space does the does the market need to kind of level out a little bit before we really understand who's legitimate and who's just you know who's just vapor in the world of blockchain what are your thoughts on people looking at this industry from the outside and trying to understand it in terms of where we're going
1: yeah so it's tough to tell i mean i think that our <laughs> our expectations for blockchain were definitely more realistic maybe a, a few years ago um i think certainly in december 2017 that was kind of the height of the of the hype circle uh hype cycle there's always going to be um you know a, a a hype cycle for any promising technology. I do think that uh, blockchain at some points was and is overhyped. Uh, certainly, there's companies who I see that are proposing to use blockchain for things which doesn't even really make sense, hmm. at least from from my perspective. I mean, I'm not sure that I need a token to go visit my dentist, um, and I don't see what efficiency, uh, you know, a dental coin is going to really bring to me. Not to pick on any particular industry, <laughs> but uh, I think if you're we looking get the at the point, yeah yeah if you're looking at investing or participating in this space, there's just so much to understand and it's it's a very different um beast i think to, to others that have come before it mm. and uh you need to be really careful about placing your money um if if you're gonna be investing in the space now that being said, we have seen uh, a fairly strong correction in two thousand and eighteen, so I do think that uh, what we'll see come out of this is, is basically what we saw happen with the internet bubble, is there's a lot of companies that start up and get funding, and then there's a lot who fail. And then out of that failure, there will come the Airbnbs, the Ubers, the Googles, where there actually is you know a, a real fundamental core technological shift that's happened, and businesses are built on top of that. So, so I am absolutely bullish on the long term. Blockchain technology. I just think that we need to have a shakeout mm. of the companies who aren't really doing real things and have just kind of um, done a lot of marketing fluff. Quite frankly, DentaCoin kind of gets where they are. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Sorry, Dental Coin, but I mean, I just I don't buy. <laughs> Do they exist? Is that a real? Yeah, one? they're
1: they're a top one hundred <laughs> coin. I mean, that that's like tens of millions of dollars. Well, there you
0: go. I, I was surprised. I mean, you did a you did a, a recent Ask Me Anything. Um, well, a few months back, you did you went to Reddit and you put yourself out there and did an AMA. And I thought I was, I was reading through some of the comments and I was quite surprised actually by the level of, of education of the comments. No disrespect to Reddit, but obviously, you know, in any situation when you put yourself out there, um, you're, you're open to just the whole world steaming in with their thoughts and, you know, their soapboxes. boxes. <laughs> and were you, what, what, sort of, what was that like for you as an experience? Because you were putting yourself out there about, you know, your philosophy as well. You're talking about blockchain. Um, what you know in terms of what people were saying and the kind of questions they were asking you, were you in any way challenged by what people's understanding of the market, or do you think that it showed kind of a level of understanding of where we are? I mean, what were your sort of feedback from that sort of uh, you know that initial session?
1: Well, I think it was really good. I mean, I, I much prefer to have a challenging intellectual question that makes me think rather than you know one moon. Uh, when moon, there's sort of not really an answer to, but, um, if you ask me, you know, a challenging intellectual question about decentralized identity, that'll at worst get me to think about it, you know? And, and I think that that's really what I'm looking for. So we've really tried to open up much more to the community and, and, uh, supporters and critics alike. So one of the things we've done is launched an ideas portal where we have a direct line to our product engineers who review every idea that we receive every Friday. So we really have tried to build in this feedback loop where mm. it's very quick um, to receive the information that we're getting from our, from our critics and our supporters with respect to our product, right? That's really what we're kind of focused on at this point, is, is our is our build out, right? Mm. And I think that the companies who are good in the space and, and will be long-standing companies in the space are the ones who are spending money on engineers and building real things. Rather than just trying to hire marketers to, you know, inflate the the sense of their company. Mm. So that's that's kind of our focus is is build real things, respond to people, and have a feedback loop that allows you to intake that that good information and criti- criticism that you receive.
0: Yeah, I just got the the when moon joke as well. So I've just seen that. <laughs> so, uh, you had to go and see the the Reddit. The Reddit, uh, we'll put the details in the show notes as well. To your point about the people who are actually out there building in this space, who, who interests you right now? Who do you think is getting it right? Who excites you when you talk about who's actually creating something in the blockchain or identity space rather than just creating great marketing?
1: Sure. I mean, I think one who doesn't get enough credit probably is Ethereum. I think that people are way too concerned about the price of Ethereum and not really looking at the underlying uh technology and what's been accomplished there and i think that everyone's kind of saying that oh like daps aren't being used enough or xyz blockchain or whatever blockchain is going to come eat their lunch i just think that there's something to be said for having that uh those many developers and that level of knowledge and expertise kind of behind a project that's building in earnest with a turing complete um blockchain Mm -hmm. that I, i really think that they're they're pretty far ahead and i think that they've done a good job so far um, building to where where they've gone, it's it's not easy to launch a new blockchain. I think sometimes that's that's sort of taken for granted. And I I definitely am am uh, bullish on Ethereum as as an ecosystem. I think that there's a lot still to be done there, and I see a lot of real promising use cases which which have been built on on Ethereum. For instance, the Australian government um, issued a bond on on a blockchain the other week, and they could have sort of picked any blockchain, including these institutional, quote unquote, private blockchains, but they chose to do it on Ethereum. I mean, these are real world dollars at play here. Mm. Um, and, and they chose to put it on Ethereum. So for me that that's kind of the most promising large project in, in the space. And I think it's one that people just kind of sometimes yawn about, cause it's not the new flashy, uh, blockchain that does whatever. <laughs> it's, mm. it's something that's kind of been building, uh, consistently for several years.
0: Do you, do you think, I mean, on that note, I mean, you mentioned the Australian government bond, is that philosophically, does that set, sit comfortably with you? I mean, I know a lot of people in this space who, as soon as you'd mention any kind of centralized monetary authority or issuer of coins, they, they you know, philosophically, it doesn't sit with them with their their goals for what blockchain could be or any kind of cryptocurrency could be or any kind of identity or privacy project should be. In the sense it should be completely decentralized and out of the control or power of a government or, you know, for example, a traditional Federal Reserve in any sense. So I mean, you mentioned the Australian authorities is there as, as an example. I just find that quite interesting. Is that do you think that's the future where you have these sort of centralized monetary authorities, you know, completely in bed with blockchain technology and issuing their own, you know, fiat currency effectively? on a blockchain base or something like that?
1: I mean, we've already we've already seen it, right? So so firstly, to answer your question, I do think that there's a role for governments to play. I'm, I'm not an anarchist and I do think that there should be governments in the world. And I also do believe that we'll see much more blockchain innovation by governments. Um, there was a presentation that I had called governments as entrepreneurs, where I was going around the world speaking to prime ministers mm. uh, three years ago. Some of them got it, some of them didn't. but. Uh, yeah, there have been several instances of, of government uh, innovation on blockchain um, from the Singapore government uh, issuing a currency as a test on Ethereum to the, the bond that was just issued on Australia. Uh, the World Bank has a blockchain project. Uh, Estonia has had government records essentially backed with a blockchain type technology for almost a decade now, um, has had huge innovation and, and uh really forward momentum through the Estonia project. Um, Of course, there's uh, the Sovereign Bolivar, which I think is unfortunate Mm. and and not the best use of of blockchain. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because
0: that's that's news, right? So I mean, I think that's just it's just very interesting. I don't know if you want to have that one in your case study portfolio, but it's interesting. Nonetheless, can you tell us a little bit about that
1: one? Yeah, so I mean, Maduro, the uh, the leader Uh, for lack of a better word, of of Venezuela issued um, the Petro, so the Petro dollar, um, and then mandated that everyone in the country use this Petro dollar. Um, I don't think it was a project that was very transparent or well executed. And to my understanding, there's not even many exchanges that accept the Petro. Um, But it it sort of illustrates the point that it is possible for a government to issue a new sovereign currency. And uh, there are others that have announced that they're going to do this. Marshall Islands has announced a... uh, a new sovereign currency. And I think that we'll see more. I I do think that blockchain is a better way to send money than the traditional financial infrastructure, right? If I want to send money from Chicago to Singapore using the existing banking system, and I need to get it done by Friday afternoon, I have to send that on like a Wednesday in some cases. But, you know, otherwise, if I send it on Friday morning, it's not going to get there by Friday afternoon. And then on the weekend. Banks are off and no money gets sent. So next Tuesday, the money's going to clear five, four days mm. later. With blockchain, it's like a 10 minute clearing time. It's just done. It's an instant international remittance that can't be stopped. Uh, and and I think that that's a huge innovation for society from a technological perspective that's sort of here to stay, right? You can't pretend that that doesn't exist. Mm. So I think what we'll see is banks and governments um, rushing to catch up and integrating infrastructure, um, which is in line with their ideals depending on whatever country it is um to create a new currency right so that we have the russian ruble which has taxes kind of built into it right and the, we'll, we'll see lots of these right um china obviously has plans for a, a currency um and have been testing that at length I, I think we'll see lots and lots and lots of different countries who start to come out with a a sovereign currency that's built on blockchain i think that that's that's almost inevitable at this point because it's, it's already started happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, th- these are fascinating times. I think we, you know, th- the speed of change right now is just so fast. In in terms of that, I, I'm surprised by how fast centralized governments have adopted these technologies. You know, when, like, for example, you, you mentioned just on that sort of micro case of, of money transfer, as an example, you know, there's a reason that, It takes three days to five days to transfer money because ultimately at the end of the day, I suppose the banks benefit from it. They benefit from holding the money and not having to upgrade their technology so there's an argument to be made that they're actually well, like
1: that it, it you know it adds to their capital float well, so exactly. there's three days that you have that you can add that to your balance sheet and you know you've increased your capital and now you can issue more stock or you can get more loans free money so out. yeah well, yeah basically
0: right <laughs> it's free growth yeah. for these guys when they're making you know, their loaning offer as well you know it, as you say expands their balance sheet so the point being is that People benefit out of that system being inefficient and ineffective, right? So, um, but I'm surprised when I look around and see like these case studies that you mentioned, how fast this being adopted, you know, what is that? Is that, is that a, like fear of like being made irrelevant, or is that, you know, or, or is the blockchain community making it, you know, doing a very good sales job of talking to governments? So, how is it that they're adopting it? To me, beyond my expectations, if I was to look sort of, two, three years back at where we would be with, with these kind of technologies, I thought no way would I have thought any kind of monetary authority would have even touched a technology like this.
1: Sure. I, mean, I think I have to eat a little a bit of humble pie here exactly what these governments are thinking or why they're doing this. And, and um, sort of, you'd have to ask them individually for any one use case. But if I had to guess, in which case I'm, I'm going might be wrong, I would say that part of it is an experimental where they're just trying to learn about it. And part of it is an understanding where, you know, they could potentially be made irrelevant in, in some instances. I, I do think that it's more um, the financial institutions who are worried about becoming irrelevant. Mm. I mean, if you look at not just blockchain, but other types of technology. I mean, TransferWise, for instance. TransferWise doesn't use blockchain, but it still makes it almost free to send uh, wire transfer internationally. And so if you look at a bank's core line of business, from loans to uh, money market accounts, there's many different startups that have come up in the past few years who previously you know, weren't disrupting the bank's business, but now they are. Look at the largest money market uh, account in the world is run by... Um, and financial and yeah. this is a company which is less than five years old i mean they have a market cap which is larger than goldman sachs yeah. and and they've been around for less than five years right if if you go to china and you experiment or not even experiment if you go to the fruit shop they accept you know we pay yeah. and and it's just amazing how the technological advances by fintechs have been able to take away and chip away at the bank's core line of business Mm -hmm. and i do think that in many cases the banks are who run the risk of becoming irrelevant if they don't kind of protect uh their core line of business and the best way to do that oftentimes is to innovate and to uh cannibalize your own business because if you don't do it then then someone else will right this isn't this isn't something i'm coming up with i mean this is well founded through say for instance the innovator's dilemma or or um you know, various works that have been done over the years by by different entrepreneurs and, and case studies at business school. Right. But we're just seeing it happen so fast with fintech. Um, and I think one of the reasons is, is that there's so much at, at play there. There's so much money to be made if you get it right. And the existing systems have been protected for so long that the difference between sending money with Bitcoin, which is takes 10 minutes and it's instant and the fees are free compared to sending money through the SWIFT system, which takes five days and is really slow and oftentimes costs you $60, mm. $100 to send international wire. So um, that's why I think we're seeing so much disruption in the, in the financial technology space.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. And I, I'm loving it. And I'm loving the fact that they're sensing the changes upon them, the barbarians at the gate, so to speak. I mean, they've always <laughs> known, I mean, the financial institutions have always known that the, the system's inefficient in many ways. It just hasn't had a challenge. Like you mentioned, for example, Ant Financial coming along. There's never been anything like that in that space. There were, you know, if you go back 15, 20 years, there were guys who were creating beans or tokens, for example, and then maybe there was PayPal, but still PayPal didn't really shake up that system to the level that we're seeing now. I mean, if you were to go into, you know, pick any event, a standard chartered or you went into a uob or an ocbc and you said five years ago look one of your biggest competitors in the next five years is going in the payment space is going to be a taxi company you know take a grab for example they they would have laughed you out the door but that's the reality now so when you put them in that situation you think about well what the hell's coming down the road in the next three to five years it's very interesting so i i love the fact that there's that momentum now that they are committing and making these projects possible, whether whether it be through fear or, like you say, to, to be involved in that space. It really doesn't matter at the end of the day. It means they're committing. so And we all win at the end of the day.
1: That's so, true. That is who wins at the end is the consumer, right? So, exactly. So ultimately, it'll be a good thing.
0: Love it. Edmund, it's been fascinating and, and a real education as well. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your ideas and your journey and where you are with SelfKey your foundation as well as kyc chain and i'm sure people want to know a little bit more about yourself as well where would be the best place that people could reach out to you learn a little bit more about you
1: Ah, uh, good question um i guess one of our websites either flagtheory.com kycchain.com or selfkey.org and uh yeah generally we have our links to our community there and you could join up there and and uh talk to us on on telegram or, or uh you know, whatever social links that we have available. Um, But yeah, just wanted to also say thank you, Graham, for the opportunity. It's been great. And I've enjoyed chatting with you today.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. Likewise, Edmund Lowell, everybody. As he said, we'll put all the details in the show notes. If you want to reach out, have a chat, do so. And you've got a lot of great thing about Edwin as well. He's got a lot of publications out there as well. You can go and check out the white papers. Um, So please read up on those if you want to get more skilled up, learn a bit more about where he's coming from. That would be a good starting point, if any. Edmund, thank you so much. Thank you, Graham.
1: All the best. Take care.
0: You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.